And welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for lack of insight and for basis opinion. Today is April 8th, 2020. This is episode 290. My name is Scott Magnus. And I'm Jake English. And this week's show will weigh in on bubble baseball. We'll also look back at a little bit of Orioles magic. And we'll do that after we lubricate for the show. It's time for the drink of the week. Jake, what are you imbibing on this evening? Scotty, I'm drinking my signature gin and tonic, but I have to tell you, these are troubling times in the kingdom. My gin supply is running short. Uh, Jake, do you need me to, in essence, drop something off for you, like, you know, a bottle of gin, um, some tonic, maybe some limes? Look, I'm not saying it's urgent, but I am saying it's essential. Scotty, what are you drinking this week? Uh, so, Jake, uh, this evening, um, I decided to go ahead and make myself a milkshake. Um, fortunately, you know, someone came by our house today and dropped off some ice cream uh, for us. Uh, Jake English, I'm, of course, talking about your, your wife. Um, and in honor of her, uh, I'm going to basically drink this milkshake because her milkshakes bring all the boys to the yard. Yikes. I was terrified that's where this was going, and... You never cease to disappoint. Well, if you want to know what we're drinking on a weekly basis, including Jake and English's wife's milkshakes, uh, check us out on Untapped. I'm at MAGN8606. I'm at JakeE4025. And Scott, I have a confession to make. Before this COVID-19 stuff got serious, uh, Sarah went to the liquor store. She asked what, what should she make sure that we stocked up on. I said, you know, I just need the essentials. I want you to make sure you grab lots of gin lots of red wine, and just a ton of cheap beer. And so we forewent the uh, the Corona joke, and she bought me a couple of cases of Michelob Ultra. And so that is really all that will show up untapped. on Untapped until all this is over. Well, I mean, depressing times call for depressing uh, <laughs> Untapped feeds. So, uh, yeah, if you want to know what Jake is basically going through those three cases of Michelob Ultra, follow him on Untapped. With that, let's go to 280 character less this week on the Twitters. Jake, why don't you start us off? Sure. There is a lot going on uh, in, during the lockdown, but I feel like there's a lot of this kind of thing going on. And so I picked a, a representative tweet. This comes from our friend Ryan at Orioles Fan Problems. Of course, that's at Orioles Fan probs with a z uh the orioles can only use three of these logos for the rest of their existence which three are you choosing it's a visual this doesn't do well in the podcast but it's a bunch of old and new orioles logos Uh, look i've said it a million times the orioles have a plethora of great classic logos it's interesting to see a bunch of them presented all together like this scotty you weighed in uh on our behalf picked a doozy i love it but i will say that looking at the entire cadre of Oreos logos, there are some really good ones in there. There are some excellent ones, and there are some that are um, absolutely horrible. Um, you know, I was when I put my list together, um, one that didn't make my list was Angry Bird. Um, and I know you're a mm. huge Angry Bird fan. Um, but again, Angry Bird just doesn't strike it to me. I, I don't know why, but, you know, I don't think of the Oreos as an Angry Bird. I think of them as, you know, 
this the smiling bird basically so like i'm looking at number eight and i'm looking at the smiling bird and then i'm looking at you know the big bat bird um you know that's what i'm looking for here i'm looking for that kind of nostalgia and happiness angry baseball i i don't need that i i watch plenty of things that make me angry on a daily basis uh, with orioles baseball so i don't i don't need to see angry bird Sure. Fair enough. The one thing I thought was interesting here is that we didn't have the ornithologically correct bird, uh, which, you know, has some good times associated with it, as as we'll talk about later. Yes, absolutely. All right. Um, you know, the next tweet, um, and we missed this, um, it came from good friend of the show, Chris Maurer, who I guess didn't go to WrestleMania week this past week since there was no audience. Um, he tweets as follows. Who's your favorite random Oriole from the 2130 and 2131 games? I'm going with Jeff Manto. Jake, who are you going with for your most favorite random Oriole from those two games? All right. It depends on how you read the question. This is not my favorite player, but my favorite thing about the lineups from the 2130 and the 2131 game is that both had an appearance from a guy named Jarvis Brown. I have no memory. Of Jarvis Brown. Jarvis Brown could not have been a good baseball player, and a more prepared podcaster would have looked up his career. But I get the impression that he was probably one of those like late inning uh, pinch runner defensive outfielder because he, he came in for Benia uh, type of guy. And if that's the case, you know, if he's the Ryan Flaherty of the 1995 Orioles, it means that he forever gets to say, I appeared in the 2130 and 2131 games with Cal Ripken. That's a cool story. That is a cool story. Um, you know, I don't know if he's a random Oriole, but I, I definitely think that Rafi is one of those situations where you look back at that game, especially for 2131, and you're just like, why did it have to wait, end the way it did for Rafael Palmer? I mean, the guy was an obvious, going to be an obvious Hall of Famer, um, and it in essence fell apart really quickly. So you look back at that, and you look back at that time, and you're like, ugh. But uh, certainly not a random Oreo, but one that plays a really interesting role as it relates to 2131. Hey, Scotty, you got a pen? Um, yes, I do, actually. All right. Everybody keeps asking, guys, what are you talking about? Because there's no baseball. How are you possibly doing this podcast? The answer is, you know, we're, we're trying to scrape everything that we possibly can together. So, Scotty, an idea just struck me, and I need you to write this down for a future episode. Okay, I'm writing you know, it down. We, we got accused of doing some Orioles fan fiction earlier on in the season, yep. which is not incorrect, That's really. Very accurate, actually. But what you just said struck me as interesting. Hear me out on this one. You wish that things had turned out differently for Rafi. What about a segment in an upcoming show for things that we had wished that we wished had turned out different or things that we wish had turned out better? Hmm. Uh, I, I can think of a lot of things there that I wish would have turned out a lot better. I feel like we've done this before at some point, but, you know, it's not like anyone would ever call us out for repeating shtick. So, uh, no. yeah, we can come back and uh, think about that as it were. And uh, just. Make Just pin that to the wall. I'll we'll that we'll the come wall. back to it. Go ahead and put in that fact, right. Up. I'll put fact, that right on SD Studios right there. Listeners, if you can uh, do our work for us, feel free to just tweet us things you wish would have gone better, and then uh, you know we'll add our own stuff. You know, Jake. Speaking of twenty one thirty and twenty one thirty one, Mister Cal Ripken Jr. finally made it official. He joined Twitter at Cal Ripken Jr., which. You would have thought there'd be some like bot or anything out there that uh, would have basically had this already. But, you know, maybe Cal got it some other way. Um, you know, 
I, I guess it's good that, you know, an individual in his 50s finally got on Twitter. Um, strange that it's not Facebook. Um, but yeah, Jake, what do you think about this, of him all of a sudden joining uh, Twitter and, and specifically for, he, he claims it's for this whole strikeout hunger aspect um, that the Calvary Senior Foundation is, um, you know, running out right now as well. Scott, I was born in 1983. I'm an Orioles fan of a certain time in history. And for me, a person who was 12 years old when Cal Ripken broke, broke the streak, I cannot have enough Cal Ripken in my life. Oh, you're going to give them to me on Twitter? Sure. It's probably a handle, uh, a handler. It's probably a, you know, a team of folks cleaning him up. That, that's fine. Give me more Cal, not less. I'll take it. So what, at what point do you think um, Cal steps in it uh, inappropriately on Twitter? Uh, you know, you want I'm to see not what sure. happens. Okay, I'm just just curious. I mean, I think you know we could have never imagined how good Jim Palmer being on Twitter was going to turn out to be, um, and it has been absolutely a classic. It'll be interesting to see if Cowrickin Jr. Uh, can even live up to a portion of that potential. Oh no way! There's no one can hold a candle to to Jockey Jim. Absolutely not. Well, you know, there are various moments that, you know, Cal Ripken, you know, has laid into us. Again, as you mentioned, you were born in 83. I was born in 84. So, you know, Cal was a good portion of our childhood. And and certainly one of those moments was 2130 and 2131. And, you know, this week on ESPN, they broad, rebroadcast the uh, the showing of 2131 again. And I sat down and watched a little bit of it um, just to kind of reminisce and has since partake in a little bit of baseball. And, you know, let's come back and maybe talk a little bit about that and, you know, just some of the things that I noticed rewatching that broadcast. Now, Scott, in the intro, you said that you watched the show or the the game on ESPN. It was the special. That's awesome. I got to be honest. I missed it. But I did see a large portion of that game on Masson, which they replayed on a Thursday night, the same night that they were the Orioles were streaming the Curse of the Andino game on online. It was interesting cuz I I was, you know, on the couch j- you know, jiving to the Cal Ripken uh moments and everybody else was dealing with with Curse of the Andino. It's interesting to me that, you know, the Orioles and ESPN both kind of dug into the well around the same time. But however you got there, Cal's streak-breaking games have gotten a lot of airplay recently. Yeah, that's it, that's interesting. I mean, do we do we read into that at all? I mean, I just think it comes back down to, you know, sports broadcasters are in essence looking for something in order to fill the airways and at least get some ratings. And I feel like, you know, not just for the Baltimore market, but from a historical market, people want to see these great moments and great portions of game. You know, if we go back and, and think about that in 1995 coming off the strike season, you know, there's a lot of people nationwide that, you know, claimed um, that's what brought baseball back. And that's not, you know, the Baltimore homer in us. You know, that was some of the aspects that were even talked out when uh, when Cal went into Cooperstown. 
So I think it does make sense to kind of reminisce on the glory days, as it were, um, in terms of when baseball can be great, you know, how good baseball can be, and just the historical slash cultural moment that it can be at that given time. Um, but it is interesting that um, it's coming to, you know, a, a crux at this moment. Um, and I don't quite know whether that's just coincidence or something else more nefarious. No, I, I think you're right. You know, if if the streak was the thing that the quote unquote saved baseball uh, after the strike, you know, this is a time where baseball as a tool for healing has never been more relevant. So this is a great moment uh, for baseball to connect to both both at home and, you know, uh, globally, uh, so to speak. But with all that, watching the game uh, again on mass and, and I'd be curious to see how it how it came across on ESPN. I, I noticed that it really did feel like forever ago and not just because you and I have become old men since the streak happened, but it was a different world. Right. Baseball was different then. The world was different then. And I'll I'll get into some of the things that that, you know, just struck me as jarringly different. But before we we go into that, I have a question for you, Scott. It it seems like the streak, you know, again, as a kid meant one thing to me, you know, for a hometown guy, not just a guy from Baltimore, but a guy that, that, you know, grew up a couple minutes down the road from me in Aberdeen, Maryland. Um it, you know, it was it was different and personal for us in a way that it wasn't for a lot of other fans, particularly those around the country. But how has the streak itself aged? How do we think of it now versus how we did then? You know, there was a lot of debate about, you know, is Cal Ripken uh, selfish because he wants to play every day? You know, is can a person really be you know dedicated to an ideal and wanting to grab his work pail every day and uh, and that kind of stuff? How do you think it plays with modern eyes versus how we and the rest of baseball felt about it then? Well, I mean, I think one of the themes that still continues on this day, and it was mentioned there, was, you know, there was talk of it's a streak that it will never be broken. And I think that was something that was said, and people were just like, yeah, that's something you're going to say after breaking such a you know historic streak. But looking at it now, you really look at the aspect of how Major League Baseball is being run on a business aspect. And how important it is to kind of maintain the preservation of your star power. And you're there. It's absolutely right now. Like it's a streak that will never, ever be broken. Like even coming back to like the whole Joe DiMaggio, you know, hit streak, that's a streak that could be broken at some point, you know, even how, even how insurmountable that is, you know, the cow streak is just something that even based off of, you know, modern baseball, it's something that is almost a relic of um you know a prior age as it were in terms of a a player playing for a team for his entire career and then b going out there every single game and in essence playing it's it's very odd you know the other thing is that it's it's folly for us to make heroes out of the men that play this game and we do it all the time right uh we don't really know these guys um and sometimes they they disappoint us and, you know, sometimes they're they're greater than we even thought as people. But there is something at a personal level that every fan of sport can connect with when the hometown kid plays for the hometown team and excels at the highest level. Right. Cal Ripken Jr. 
was a great baseball player. Like he's, he's in the hall of fame. He revolutionized the position. He had this amazing streak, but for the moment that it happened in the game, the way it happened, you know, being again, the, the story that everybody can identify with as what they want out of sports. Um, you know, if, if you can't get into that, then you are too cynical and too broken to enjoy baseball. Yeah, I mean, it had everything that you were looking for in terms of what what makes baseball great. It it had a historical element. Um, it had a you know a father son moment with Cal Ripken Senior watching his son in essence break the streak. Um, you had an aspect of humility and kind of just wanting to see things through and just basically see the game on, as opposed to making it some you know grand ceremony. It turned into a grand grand ceremony. Um, much to, you know, maybe Cal not wanting to do so, but just paying recognition to the moment. But, but certainly it's one of those, you know, moments in time, um, that you look back on, you just say, wow, like, I don't know if we'll ever see something like that ever again. Sure. Sure. No, absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the dating that I was talking about before. Just looking at the the telecast, I I made a lot of observations that I, I was just, I was really struck by, you know, gosh, how long it's been. And it was little details. Like when you see the fans in the stands, there's almost no orange, right? Nobody in the 90s wore jerseys to baseball games. Uh, the prevailing color in the stands was was white, not orange or, or anything else. You know, the, the culture of attending a sports game was different then than it is now. Um, and, the, and the park itself was also different as – uh, beautiful and as timeless as Camden Yards uh, is and and was then, the Orioles made a concerted effort in 2012 to bring orange to the park, right? To make orange uh, a predominant color. You know, you've got the umbrellas, you've got the trim uh, of the signs on on the warehouse. Um, it's it's in the concourse everywhere. Like they really tried to to bring that that color scheme in, but you know the park just looked different. You know, I tweeted out that they, you know, I, I had forgotten that brick wasn't present in the behind the batter. You know, it was the the green pads. Um, and so it, it's interesting thinking about the way we think baseball parks should look. And it seems like the older Camden Yards gets, the more it looks like the way baseball parks always should have been. Yeah, I mean, it, it was basically a foundation uh, for you know what the parks and all the parks are going to look like going forward. So, uh, I mean, it's a timeless classic, and we will continue to kind of you know look at it as that of being a timeless classic, just like we do Fenway or Wrigley or anything like that. I think going forward, I, I think when people mention the aspect of well, could the Orioles need another stadium? I think most people just scoff at the idea and be like, you can't make Camden Yards more perfect than it already is. Like it's it's literally almost the perfect stadium. Yeah. They don't even need a new stadium in Sarasota. Crazy. Crazy. Um, you, you know, again, going back to the park, the skyline looked awesome. You know, you see the Bromo Tower without the uh, hotel and, and condo in the center field, left field area. Uh, I forgot how different that looked. Yeah. I mean, it definitely gave you a, a much better depiction of what downtown Baltimore kind of looked like as opposed to one giant building blocking all the view. Yeah. Yeah. Um Another little detail that I missed, uh, Rex Barney. Yeah. You know, Rex Barney's presence was part of going to the, the ballpark. And, as, uh, you know, I'd love 
Ryan Wagner and what he's brought to the game. Uh, I thought especially, you know, during the Buck Showalter years when uh, Ryan Wagner's personality became a drawing feature to the stadium, you know, us uh, chanting along J.J. Hardy with him, uh, him, you know, and down the stretch they go, uh, you know, for the kids steal second. Every little thing he does to make our... you can do that better. (laughs) No, I could never do it the way he does, and I would never embarrass myself. That's that's not true. I would never embarrass myself in this way. But as as um, as much as I love what he does to enhance our baseball experience at the park, I had I had forgotten how much Rex Barney's fingerprint was on the Camden Yards experience. Um, And just hearing him in the background, uh, you know, nothing special, but just hearing him in the background during the game. I was like, oh, that's right. That's what summer nights in Baltimore used to sound like. Yeah, and like I said, I think, you know, that's nothing to Ryan Wagner. It's just a different voice and everything like that. And I think, um, ultimately, it's just a a piece of nostalgia that comes back up again. Yeah. What about you? I mean, I'm here I am gushing about uh, how how different things are. Are there things that, that leapt out at you as you watched the game? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I think I've talked to you about this before. This was a game that I actually was at. Uh, I was actually sitting in the upper deck. Um, so it was just really a, a great game to kind of watch again. And, and I've seen the game multiple times before, um, on TV. Um, and I, and I guess every single time I look at it, I just think to myself, it's somewhat surreal to me. You know, you look back onto it and it's almost like you're flipping through a family photo book, um, where like everybody in it is just like, Oh my God, what are they wearing? Um, and you're just looking through it and be like, did this actually happen? And then you realize, yeah, this actually did happen. And this was you know, a portion of my life. Um, you know, I think things that, you know, jumped out at me were just how kind of everything worked out exactly the way it should. It was, you know, Messina's on the mound, you know, Cal hits a home run. Um, the Orioles end up winning the game. Um, you know, both teams are not in essence playing for a playoff spot. So in essence, it kind of is this, you know, relaxed atmosphere in terms of just kind of, you know, understanding the moment. Um, and like I said, it's just a, it's a really good kind of um, stamp in time is the best way to put it. Um, and like I said, that's the best way I can. Whenever I watch that, it just kind of takes me back to my childhood. Yeah. And thanks for bringing up the Angels. The, they were really the Washington Generals that night. Yeah. Right. Like they they were there to be a prop for Cal Ripken's night. And and by the way, when I say the Angels, I mean the California Angels. Um but yeah, they they handled that with a lot of grace uh, because you know it was just not not the way it was supposed to be. You you mentioned Messina. Messina pitched seven and two thirds innings and threw a hundred and forty pitches that wow. night. Talk about a difference in baseball. I mean, that would never happen now. Well, I'll even go one more on you. It comes back down to if we think about the game um, and we think about you know just the whole point of. You know, Messina comes out there, pitches, you know, five innings, gets to five and a half or going into the bottom of the fifth, and the game goes into delay for over a half an hour and the Orioles come to the plate. I mean, just think about that of, you know, going out there and being like, well, I haven't pitched for 45 minutes and I'm going to go back out there and keep throwing again. Uh, I mean, that would be like a rain delay at this point. And, you know, in essence, you know, Messina was able to come out there and in essence, chuck another almost two innings worth of work. So, it's really impressive. Um, 
just to kind of look back at that and be like, wow, um, you know, st- just a really nice game from Messina, all things considering. Yeah, Messina. I mean, he was okay, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he 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 was pretty decent. So he was he was no Ben McDonald, right? No, no Ben McDonald. I mean, I, I think back to that, I and mean, everyone knows that listens to the podcast. You know, growing up as a kid, um, I'd say you know I got into the Orioles right around '89 with the Why Not season, um, with me and my dad like talking about it. Uh, I started collecting baseball cards and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously it was coming up and Mucina was coming up and McDonald was coming up. And, you know, I I obviously cheered for Cal, but at that same aspect, Cal seemed like the obvious choice is the best way to put it. It was just like, well, everybody roots for Cal. Like, I want to be a little bit different. I want to be a rebel. So I wanted to find somebody, somebody new. And, you know, I come back to that point that she made, Jake, which is, you know, I think people look back on Cal, and I think even in the moment we looked at Cal and said, well, Cal is there for the streak, and I don't think we give really the credit that Cal deserves in terms of, you know, how good of a player he really was. I mean, we take a look at his, you know, 1991 season with a 10.6 F war. Um, we take a look at his 1984 season with a 9.F war. But even in the 1995 season, which, again, I'm not saying it's on the downwards of his career, but I wouldn't say that he was a, you know, the superstar that we were thinking of him, you know, earlier on in his career. He's still posting a 4.1 F war at that given time. So again, if we were to look back on that and be like, okay, like, you know, what kind of player was Cal at that point of his career? um, You know, he's still putting up, you know, all-star like numbers as it were in terms of performances. So, you know, he didn't have a negative war season until his last season, um, and every other season before then, he's basically posting 2.0 F4s and above. And like I said, if we look back to those kind of Hall of Fame seasons that he had, um, he's posting, you know, trout-like numbers in terms of, um, you know, values. I mean, we're not just talking, you know, good defensive numbers, but we're talking like 146 weighted runs created plus. We're calling out like a 370 on base percentage. If you would have told me that Cal Ripken had a 370 on base percentage, I'd been like, nah, like he's probably like 320 to 340. But like this is a guy that is playing, you know, exceptional defense at at, at shortstop and also putting up a 370 on base percentage. And I think that's where you look at it and you're just like, holy cow, like that guy was really, really good uh, as a baseball player and not just as a streak. And I think sometimes we as Orioles fans, you know, specifically myself, I think we had a tendency to overlook that and really focus more on the streak and going to work every single day rather than the production that he was actually putting up and the consistency aspect of it as well. Yeah. And and you think about, you know, that player playing 162 games. I mean, we would be thrilled if the if the complement of players that played shortstop all season came anywhere near half of that, right? But this was one guy that gave it to you every day. Absolutely. Every day. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because, you know, we let's go back to that 95 season. I think it was a really interesting um, aspect of, you know, if the season um, would have continued in 1994, we obviously had the strike shortened season. So they only played 112 games. And even 1995, it was a shortened season of 144 games. 1994, 4.6 war in a shortened season. So he probably would have been at six or seven war for the 1994 season, 1995, again, shortened season 4.1. So we're looking at maybe 4.6 to to 5.0. Again, a really good player. And it's just amazing to me just to see how good he was. And it's somewhat surprising to me taking a look at his numbers that he had during the 96 and 97 season. 
Um, and in essence, you know, not seeing that production, it almost makes me wonder, man, if Cal would have had those that season like he did in 94 and 95 and had it in the 96 and 97 season, would the team have been just a little bit different and just good enough in order to kind of push them over the edge and get to the World Series? Don't know, um, but just something that is an intriguing thing for me to look at, back on from a career standpoint. Yeah, and, and perhaps for a fan fiction episode of the future. Absolutely. All right, let's let's go back to the game itself. I want to talk about a couple of the moments that mattered. Let's talk about the home run. Uh, Cal Ripken, you know, ever the quiet showman, so to speak, gave us homers in both the twenty one thirty and the twenty one thirty one game. You've asked on the twitters, was the pitch grooved? I'm going to ask you, Scotty. The home run on twenty one thirty one was it grooved? I think so. It's just so flat. Like, it's so flat. Like, there has to be some more movement. Um, I, I just think it, I think it was a groove pitch. Um, I think, again, it's a, it's a nothing game. And I think, you know, the Angels basically just said, why don't you go ahead and give it to him now? Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know one way or the other, but all the evidence certainly doesn't disprove it. It doesn't disprove it. We talked about not being cynical and showing cynicism. And, you know, you want to, in essence, embrace the magic and be like, wow, like, did that really just happen? But in reality, there's probably, you know, something else going on there. I'll tell you what, though. 12-year-old Jake did not think to himself, oh, that pitch was grooved. No, of course not. I mean, Jake was still believing in Santa Claus at that point. (laughs) And he had arrived that night. Yes. And his bag of goodies included a home run. All right. uh, What about the the numbers coming down? We'll we'll talk about the the game stoppage in just a second. But, you know, the numbers being unfurled every every day for the, the fifth inning. Uh, I had forgotten, you know, how emotional that got toward the end. Uh, that, that was a nice moment and something that, you know, obviously, and he talked about this on the, the, uh, <laughs> the mass and rewatch telecast, uh, where he originally was really resistant to it and, and then, you know, got into it, but you know, boy, how did the fans had no problems getting into it? Yeah. And I think that kind of is one of those things that we look back on. And even when the team pulls out and actually puts the numbers back up on the wall in the warehouse on occasion for celebrations, Again, you're transported back to that moment. So, um, you know, I think that's a sensory memory that we will always have. Um, and it just kind of goes to the longevity and, um, you know, how historical, you know, that is. You know, baseball is a number sport. Um, and there's no better way to kind of explain that number than to unroll it out at 30 feet height <laughs> and basically <laughs> show it off to everybody. So it's a, I think it was a really cool idea um, and a really great way to use the warehouse as a backdrop as well. Sure, sure. All right, so the fifth inning happens. The game stops. Uh, look, I could watch this, you know, 18 minutes or whatever it was on replay forever. I, I just, I love this. It always gets me. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's an interesting moment um, because, you know, the, the crowd is cheering him on and continues to cheer him on. And I would say at the very beginning, it's actually somewhat awkward um, in, in terms of it, because like Cal obviously doesn't want the game to stop. Like he wants to continue. He wants to basically embrace the fans. He wants to, you know, tip the cap, but he wants to get past it. Um, but in essence, the fans keep asking for more and more and more 
Um, and in essence, he has to kind of respond to it. You, you know, and I come back to the Palmero situation. You know, Palmero, in essence, pushing him out on the field um, in order to basically, in essence, say, you got to go and do something about this. Um, you know, I think when the lap starts, um, that's when you know, like, this is something different that we've never seen before. Um, you know, I think coming out of the field and tipping your cap, I think we've seen that before for 3,000 hits and 500 home runs for a multitude of players. But when the lap starts, um, something changes. And like I said, the emotions start to build um, rapidly at that point. But before then, I'm like, eh, this is this is pretty typical. Um, but yeah, when the lap starts, you know, it's it's pretty, pretty impressive. The thing I love about the game stoppage is that there wasn't a person in the stadium who, in, in a position of authority, who didn't get the fact that what was going on was bigger than the game, right? No, none of the umpires, n- nobody thought to themselves, maybe except for Cal, look, we get, this game is, is is so important that we've got to, you know, we've got to trim this. They realized, oh, what's going on here between you know the player and and the fans is is baseball is the big thing and we need to lean into this rather than than trying to curtail it and i think you know it's one of those things where it doesn't happen all the time it doesn't happen often even but but sometimes baseball just gets things so right um and again if if you were not an orioles fan watching this from afar uh you know i i think again you can still uh, connect to it. Maybe you don't get the goosebumps we get, but you can still connect to it. Now, the the experience I think that you and I had watching it um, differed in the fact that you know on the I guess what was it HTS at the time at the HTS telecast it was not silent, but the ESPN folks had the good sense to shut up during the uh, Chris Berman even at that decided to be quiet, which is just like a a miraculous moment for Chris Berman not to say anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I gotta be honest. I prefer that approach. They, they won an Emmy for that, yeah. uh, and, and good on them. Uh, but yeah, the, the lap is, uh, you know, it's a classic, classic moment. And, and it's the type of thing that, you know, we always try to go back to nostalgia. And so, you know, when the Orioles were winning, uh, in the, the Duquette Showalter years, you know, when Adam Jones, you know, went up and down the lines, pieing fans and whatnot. It was in many ways, I'm sure not in his eyes, but in our eyes, uh, reminiscent of that kind of connection, right? Um, it, it is, it has become a very storied Oriole moment. Yeah. And uh, I would yeah. say it's an Orioles tradition at this point of, um, you know, Cal doing it. And then I think even Adam with the clinchman standpoint, I think now, um, there is a, a certain aspect of circling Camden Yards, as it were, in terms of celebrating with the fans. You know, we talk about Cal and we talk about the streak in terms of, you know, what the streak is and that aspect of coming to the ballpark day in and day out. Um, and I think there is an aspect of that from a Baltimore mindset, um, but also the fan mindset of, hey, thanks for coming out to the park to see me on a day in and day out basis and in essence paying respect to the fans in that given regard. Um so again, I would assume, um, you know, that Orioles that get that kind of theme going forward in the future will, in essence, take similar celebrations like that, um, you know, in the right moment. Now, did the ESPN telecast include the postgame uh, presentation? It did not. Um, it just kind of ended at the end of the game and they kind of moved on past it. 
Oh, that's a bummer. The the Mass and Rewatch, which I mean, again, I must have been shown on on HTS at the time. The post game show is also a lot of fun for me in, in a lot of ways. You know, th- there are just lots of wonderful nuggets there of nostalgia. You know, John Miller, Chuck Thompson. You know, a Brooks Robinson who is clearly an older guy, but he looks so young <laughs> compared to now. You know, Earl was there. Uh, you know, Brady Anderson and, and Mike Messina spoke. You, know, you had Joe DiMaggio, uh, a very old Joe DiMaggio, taking taking part in the ceremony. Uh, there, there were just all sorts of really cool little moments in the in the post game, and you know, some of it was awkward, and some of it has become more awkward in in time. Uh, you know, little details like, you know, the, the Ripken's marriage. Uh, but there, there were a lot of just really cool, uh, post game, uh, items. One, one thing that I thought was hysterical was that Peter Angelos was not yet the total villain. Um, you know, the crowd got a little rowdy while he spoke cause they were anxious to get to Ripken. But if he stepped onto the field to try to go behind a microphone now, I mean, he would just be booed off the face of the planet. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, it's interesting to see how quickly um, things can change. Um, I guess it's not even quickly because it's been 25 years. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting to see how an individual that, in essence, saved the team, um, in essence, over 25 years now, has been turned into a villain um, in terms of you know how the team has been approached and how the team has been managed in that time. Well, Scotty... Uh you know they're they're looking for content, the the team and and the broadcasters, they certainly found something to scratch my itch. A- anything else a- about the twenty one thirty one game that that we haven't covered in just exquisite detail? Um, no, not really. Like I said, it's it's one of those moments that um, is truly a magical time. Um, you know, I talked about it before in terms of. You know, the Orioles and the Angels both were not playoff teams. You know, the only part of me would is always this aspect of I wish it was in '96 as opposed to '95, because having mm-hmm. the ability to tie both the '21 '31 game and the '96 team, I think would have been really nice. Um, but again, I think when I look back at that era of '95, '96, and '97, um, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to kind of have it be a new player, be a McDonald or Musina. But now looking back on it, you know you know, the 90s really were the Cal generation. Um, you know, as much as Mucina was a great pitcher for the Orioles, you know, the 90s were al- are always going to be and always be in my head the Ripken years um, in terms of, you know, what he meant to this team and what he meant to this city. All right. Well, that is baseball of old. But, Scott, I think the real question is, what about the baseball of today? When we come back, let's go ahead and see if there's baseball today. So, Jake, there is a rumor proposal that came out via ESPN um, earlier this week being discussed by both Major League Baseball and the MLB Players Association indicating that Major League Baseball is looking at potentially restarting baseball up as early as May um, and then playing all the games in Arizona, uh, and, and including basically spring training sites that are currently present out there. 
Um, you know, it would require, you know, quarantining of players and associated team staff and regular testing. Um, so, Jake, I, I just wanted to get some initial impressions from you about what you thought about this idea that's been kind of floated out there as it relates to, um, you know, baseball um, in the Arizona, you know, Fall League, as it were. All right. My my reaction is twofold. And first and foremost, and, and the majority of my heart, soul and mind says that is insane. It's just crazy. There's no reason to rush to baseball. Look, I know baseball is a business and they're losing money. I know that you know they they desperately want a season. And I, I get all of that. But this really does fly in the face of public health. It flies in the face of player safety. And it, it also, you know, it, I want baseball to be back, right? And, and a part of me just doesn't, you know, doesn't care how I get it. But at the same time, if you're going to tell me that you're going to wedge all of the, the best assets that Major League Baseball has together during a global pandemic, that is a much bigger risk to the game of baseball than losing a season to me. You know, what happens if the game's faces come down with, with you know, the virus and lose playing time and, and God forbid, would, would pass away? You know, what would we think of this proposal? What would we think of this desire to return to normalcy at that point? Um, but but the other the other smaller part of me um, says that at the same time, you know, this is kind of what baseball does. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're in this moment where we, you know, it's a, it's a high anxiety time for the country, for the world and, you know, a lot of people are realizing what a hole in their psyche a lack of sports leaves. And instead of, you know, beating up on on political leaders and each other, and instead of, you know, feeling the high anxiety of the moment, it's kind of nice to be able to debate and toss around a sports-related item, right? It's a discussion point. I know, it, you know, content creators all over the world are delighted to have this to argue over. But it's kind of the role that baseball fills, right? Like this is this is part of the the value it has. Yeah, I mean, um, again, I I completely agree with you on the aspect of the health merits and everything like that too. Um, it is a very self serving aspect as it relates to Major League Baseball, the Players Association, and then those of us with first world problems that we're looking for a distraction. But you're absolutely right. You know, baseball has served this role of kind of being the ability to kind of get back to normal. Um, you know, a, a great example uh, is one we just talked about with the whole 2131, you know, coming off a, a, a strike season. Um, and in essence, you know, the Ripken moment is a moment that allows baseball to kind of re return to a sense of normalcy. You know, now if talk to the aspect of, you know, what does this moment feel like? You know, we've talked about in terms of, you know, what impact it's going to have on our kids um, what impact it's having on our coworkers, what's happening with our friends or family. And, you know, I, I think back to, you know, within our lifetime, what is a similar moment that, you know, it has this kind of level of grandiose moment. And the only thing I can think of is, is 9-11. And I think back to that time of, you know, 9-11, and I think back to, I, I'm sorry, but this is an Orioles podcast, but I'm going to mention it. I do think back to that moment where, you know, President Bush did come out 
and, and throw the first pitch at Yankee Stadium. And it was a very powerful message. It was a powerful aspect of, you know, him coming out with, you know, you know, onto the mound, you know, giving the thumbs up and then, you know, throwing a strike or the other plate. And it's that aspect of you're watching that game, whether you're a Yankees fan or not, and you say to yourself, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. Um, and I think that's what sports can do for us. And I think that's what baseball has done for us in the past of, you know, no matter how crazy it is in this world, um, you know, getting back to some sanity, um, getting back to some normalcy, getting back to that white noise that is baseball um, is really important. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, when does Major League Baseball finally say, we're going to make the commitment because we feel it's best for the business and we feel like we have to make this this change, as it were, or make this commitment um, in terms of you know getting things back to a sense of normalcy. Now, here's something in, in reading about this proposal that I, I didn't realize, and, and shame on me, Scott. But you know, a large chunk, maybe even the largest chunk of MLB revenue still comes from gate receipts. Now, I, I would have thought that in in this time. You know, we we would have seen that overcome by the the RSN contracts and on all the money associated with TV. But no matter what MLB does, they're going to lose money hand over fist. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely going to lose money. I mean, I think we've, we've talked about this before for the Orioles, and I think it's roughly is it thirty million or forty million dollars they're pulling in out of like three hundred million. So. I mean, it's it's a significant chunk of money. Um, there's no question about that. Um, but I think ultimately it's a question of, um, you know, in essence, getting back to, um, you know, making sure that there's TV deals, making sure that the players are, in essence, still going out there and performing. Um, and in essence, like I said, getting back to, you know, having people have their eyes on an attraction. And, you know, the we talk about this all the time in terms of what is going to be that next big moment um, in terms of engaging um, the populace in terms of baseball. Uh, We talk about the aspect of it's an old man game. We talk about, you know, there's a lot of individuals in their teenage years or in their twenties that are not watching the game. And there's been conversations by major league baseball to in essence shorten the game um, to try to get more fan, fan, you know, interaction but I can't think of a better instance to basically get eyes on thing than to have baseball restarted up again um, when they're the only game in town. Um, mm. And I, I think that's an important aspect. I mean, we're turning in and watching, you know, Tiger King on Netflix. I mean, look how far we have fallen uh, in terms of what we're <laughs> looking to watch. Um, so I, I do think there's that opportunity, but I, I do share your concern of, um, is made the right time to do it. Um, is that a situation where we're in Russell's rushing back a little too quickly um, in, in order to get get something on the field? Or is it a situation of maybe we need to socially distance for a little bit longer uh, and in essence wait another, you know, call it four to six weeks and get into late June or July um, and have a better instance to allow kind of flattening within metropolitan districts and then hopefully that, you know, maybe a vaccine is created, um, you know, with the uh, immense amount of money and research being funneled into that as well. I'm, I'm fascinated by the player side of all this. Like I, I get major league baseball's position. Um, 
but I, I'm I'm really fascinated by the reaction of the players. You know, the players' association clearly is a, a major piece of this negotiation. But I feel like, to a certain degree, though they most of them, uh, you know, live comparatively in ivory towers from the rest of us. When it comes to this, they are kind of like the rest of us, and the fact that they're they're divided. You know, some are are anxious to get back to work. They want to get back to normal. They want to get back to playing the game. They you know they're they're itching because it's all they've ever known, and and they're just not they're not built to not do baseball, right? We see that all the time with players when they you know when they retire, they're just not the same. They can't. Um, and yet there are others that that you know don't want to do it because they can't imagine being separated from their families. There are some that don't want to do it because, uh, you know, they feel like the the plan may be irresponsible at, at a time of global pandemic. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, how that carries the day. Um, if if baseball and the players' association make some sort of agreement, you know, are all of the players going to be on board, and and what happens if that's not the case? So I, I think that's a really interesting scenario because, of course, it's you know. Players Association a Union, they can in essence force the hand. But I feel like there has to be some kind of escape clause. Like if a player feels like their safety is in line, they can't be forced to basically come to work. Um, so I feel like there's got to be some aspect of um, you can take a medical leave um, and in essence not have mm-hmm. yourself be penalized in the given regard. I, I do wonder to a certain extent how much of an impact that has in terms of um, how certain teams are stripped of players, you know, whether teams can actually, you know, still, you know, feel competitive teams, you know, maybe folks are, you know, at the same level at the Orioles. Um, <laughs> you know, the other thing too, is it's an interesting aspect of if you're sending teams out there and they're not you know, playing at their home sites and everything like that, you know, doesn't even matter if they are wearing the given uniforms that, you know, are representing their teams at that given time. Is it, more of a situation where we need to embrace more of like a world baseball classic standpoint um, and in essence, basically draft up new teams and in essence go through kind of a March madness um, kind of style for the rest of the season or a round Robin format. That's a cool idea. That's a cool idea. Now we we should be totally fair and say that, you know, major league baseball has made it clear that this is just, you know, an idea that's being floated. They're not committed to it. No decision has been made. Uh, you know, they're not moving forward in an irresponsible manner. That's all good and fine. But we have heard some of the details of unique features that they are are kicking around for some sort of sort of a shortened season. And Scotty, some of them do not sound awful. Um, so the, the first one that's been bandied out about is uh, the use of robot umps so that the umpire doesn't have to be close to the catcher uh, and the batter to uh, to limit. Uh, you know, close contact, but that's, you know, that's slippery slope territory. Don't you think? Uh, it's an interesting scenario. Um, it's something that of course, major league baseball has been talking about. has been implemented at the independent league with, we'll call it decent success. Um, it gives them the ability to try something that they've wanted to try um, without much judgment, probably from the umpires association or major league baseball players association. So um, again, Pretty sneaky um, by Major League Baseball there, in my opinion, um, and not a half-bad idea. Yeah. Also, with the social distancing, the idea of no mound visits uh, by the for the pitcher and catcher. Again, you know, got to keep them separated. I'd be interested to see if there was some sort of arrangement made with radios. 
Oh, that's, you know, that's I mean, the Astros could help out with that. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, Morse code on the trash can. But it's interesting because, like, I think back to the 2012 season with, uh, of course, Chen tweets. Uh, if you've got a translator, like, how in essence are you in essence relaying signals back to them to be like, hey, I need you to do this. Um, are we going to get into a situation like where it's college football where you're in essence holding up big boards, which has pictures on it, and the pictures just like, got it, Aardvark, Statue of Liberty. Uh, gorilla. I know exactly what what you want me to do, Coach. I appreciate it. Yeah, they'll they'll call out plays like Peyton Manning at the line, Omaha, Omaha. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. It's very interesting. Uh, yeah. Speaking of radios, one of the other ideas is is as uh, more on field mics uh, for for the television broadcast uh, as you know fan engagement. Again, love that idea. If you're going to change love the game. That idea. You might as well make it more accessible. It's interesting of coming back to, you know, the one game that, you know, resonates in my head is, of course, um, the Freddie Gray game um, that was held here in Baltimore. uh, And just the difference in terms of noise and sound that was present in the stadium um, being played that whole game. Um, Like you could hear people talking in the dugouts, not in essence making out what they were saying, but you could in essence hear that noise occurring and even just the way the bat sound coming off the ball coming off the bat was different as well. So I think on-field mics makes a ton of sense. Um, uh, like I said, it's it's one of those great ideas from Major League Baseball that I think could pick up traction and, in essence, be something that is required going forward um, in terms of kind of growing the game. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. There, there would be no fans at these games. And so I, I love the idea of on-field mics, but I love it even more because, like you said, we, we would catch – so much more you catch so much and, and then you know another uh, idea that's been tossed around seven inning double headers to try to increase the number of games that are played we talked you know, about we, this we, in a previous podcast we did we did <laughs> are, scott are you feeding major league baseball information no matt taylor is <laughs> well thank god someone is uh i gotta be honest i don't love the seven inning double header idea but you know desperate desperate times call for desperate measures yeah um, and then players sitting in the stands was another one, uh, kind of at a safe distance on the dugout, um, in essence, kind of spread out. Uh, I think this is an interesting one. Um, I could see uh, a lot of uh, shenanigans being played here um, in terms of you know what what's going on in stands. Um, but I think this is a really intriguing idea, just to kind of you know do good good health decision here, but also just to see what kind of dynamics change compared to the dugout. I think if the players sit in the stands rather than the dugout, the presence of the wave would ruin me. Oh, my goodness. That's a good point. Yeah. The presence of the wave would ruin me. You know, I I do. You talked about the World Baseball Classic feel. I wonder if these games would have a different feel. You know, you, you mentioned Freddie Gray. That time was so weird and it was so, so tense it was hard to to lean into the positive vibes. I almost wonder if, you know, games in, in a scenario like this would come across a little bit more like exhibition games, almost like the all-star game in the fact that, you know, there would be more bant- banter uh, between the teams and more, you know, friendliness of like, oh, isn't this weird uh, type of thing that would make it into the, you know, the production of the product, so to speak. So I, I definitely think you're right. Um, you know, I'm going to come back and bring up Chris Mauer again. Um, 
WWE wrestling has, in essence, been continuing to run their product, um, but they've been doing so uh, with no audiences. So they basically have foregone, you know, their stadium tours and everything like that, um, and including their their biggest event of the season uh, with WrestleMania, where they normally get you know eighty to ninety thousand people um, coming to this event, and in essence, dropping you know easily probably five hundred dollars a piece um, in order to get it. so huge cash cow for them. Um, and in essence, they basically said, we're not doing that this year. We're going to, in essence, hold the event, um, and we're going to forego all that revenue coming in. Um, and it's a very interesting um, aspect from a wrestling standpoint because, obviously, there is kind of a theatrical uh, play style that occurs, and you, in essence, build off the audience, and there's kind of this aspect of the wrestlers engaging the wrestler, but the wrestler is also engaging the crowd, and everything changes but I would still say there's those moments. And I think that's the big thing from, from a baseball standpoint is there's still going to be those moments that make you say, wow. Um, you know, whether it's a situation where uh, you've got Manny Machado in essence scooping up a ball barehanded and throwing it across first base, um, whether you're coming across the player that is hitting an absolute bomb um, into, you know, left field upper deck, or, you know, if it's Arizona spring training league, um, it's going to be the aspect of putting it into a parking lot somewhere. I think it's going to be those kind of moments that, uh, in essence, are going to become the moments that we, re- we remember. Um, and it's going to be different, but I still think it's going to have the same magic and allure that baseball brings to us. Scotty, I, you know, I'm no doctor and I, I don't play one on TV and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. But I, I will say that I'm not a fan of bubble baseball. Uh, I think it's probably too soon. And I think that, you know, I am I am desperate for baseball, but I'm also willing to wait for it to, to happen safely and to happen right. And I think that as desperate as we all are, you know, the people that have the the luxury of caring about the fact that there's no baseball can also wait. Yeah, no, I I completely agree that, um, you know, I think the season has to wait. I still think the best idea that I've heard to date um, has been, in essence, waiting to the All-Star game and starting it then. Um, The one idea I haven't heard yet, but I still think it's the best idea, is, um, you know, scrap the entire schedule um, for what it is. You know, the games that were going to be held in July, August, September, and everything like that they immediately are just kind of thrown away. And in essence, what we do is we go to a schedule where you play all your games in your division. Uh, So you, in essence, play everybody in the AL East. um, All the AL Central folks play each other. And in essence, you crown, um, you know, two people from each division to go into an expanded MLB playoff uh, and, and, and play it out through that, through that format. Hmm. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to uh, to see what they come up with. In the meantime, you know, at least we've got this to debate, and uh, you know, we'll see what other crazy ideas come out of New York at MLB MLB offices. Well, with that, why don't we go ahead and, and blow the save and uh, talk a little bit about some of the stuff that I've been doing lately uh, on the Twitter. Scotty, I am not usually a fan of 
Yeah, or I'm not supportive, rather, of of giving you the opportunity to talk about your internet habits. But shoot, I'm going to do it. You have been uh, very active the last you know couple weeks, talking about uh, you know some of the things you've been finding in SD Studios as you've been working from home. Tell me a little bit about it, and uh, you know how did how did that start? Yeah, so um, you know, pretty simple. Um, if you have Google Chrome, you go to uh, incognito mode. Uh, oh, the other the, thing. Oh, the other, the other thing. thing. Gotcha. Yeah, so I mean, um, obviously, we're all kind of you know, in essence, working from home um, now, uh, displaying social distancing. And, and I shouldn't say everybody. Um, there's a lot of you out there that listen to the show that are you know, on the front lines, whether you are, you know, police, firefighters, um, emergency personnel working at hospitals. Um, but those of us that are considered non-essential are at home right now sitting in our offices and, you know, basically just trying to convince our bosses that we actually are doing meaningful work um, to kind of support this country going forward. Um, you know, in, you know, SD Studios, which is my my work office right now, um, there is various Orioles memorabilia um, and, a, and a cornucopia of, of Orioles kind of nostalgic items that we talked about before and one of those things that are in here are kind of baseball cards that you know i began collecting back in i'd say like 89 to 90 um and just collecting various ones and you know i've been posting cards that you know are on the walls or stuff that i've pulled out recently and was looking through i think i posted a ken griffey jr dream team one i posted a cow ripkin 1983 flare um i posted i think a 1994 scorecard and, you know, I think it's one of those situations that, you know, we talk about baseball and we miss it all. But I think, you know, ultimately, baseball is all about stories and it's all about the nostalgic aspect. Um, so, you know, I'm going to continue to kind of do that to kind of bring about that nostalgia aspect to reminiscence about, you know, the good old days. Um, and in essence, you know, post a few cards of, you know, some some individuals that I we still hold in high regard, such as Ken Griffey Jr. and Cal Ripken. But maybe some other cards, too, that I collected during the 1980s and 1990s that, looking back on, uh, may not have as much value now as they did when I when I first put them into protective sleeves. So um, keep a look for that on, on the Twitter. Um, and like I said, we'll, we'll keep that going until baseball resumes again. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like my interest in baseball cards really was like at the peak of, you know, baseball cards being valuable and culturally relevant. Um, and, you know, I loved collecting cards and trading them with my friends and, you know, reading, just pouring through them to, to you know, learn about players in the game. Uh, it was something that my grandfather was so into baseball cards. I mean, he just collected them like crazy. Um, and, you know, after he passed away, we, we just have like crates of baseball cards now. But the neat thing is that, you know, my, my interest eventually waned, um, you know, I guess, you know, uh, Puff slipped back into his cave and I started to become interested in other things, I guess. But um, now that, that my son is, is nine, he's interested in baseball cards. And so it's really, it's really fun to view the modern game through his eyes with this old tool uh, of baseball cards, which is something he like he gets is special and cool, but uh, you know hasn't hasn't quite figured out. And you know there's no, there's no market among his friends for you know like trading and and competing on collections and things like that. Uh, but definitely you know like the rest of the game has evolved and is interesting. 
And that, that is our show. So, remember, you can find this in our entire catalog of indispensable episodes at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. Bird's Eye View is available for download wherever it is you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google+, Plus, uh, Spotify, and many others. Please remember to rate and review the show. We appreciate the feedback, and it encourages other people to listen for the first time. Come and get social with us. You can email us at contact at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. You can find us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat, but the best way to get a hold of us is still on Twitter, where we tweet at Bird's Eye View, B-A-L. And with that, Baltimore and beyond, I will bid you all a fond adieu-adieu. Good night, Baltimore. Please be safe out there. And let's go O's. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.